Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And Kiara is sounding sufficiently... um, Far away. Far away, like low quality... Uh, audio at the moment because not only because she's sick but because she's skyping us in for this one because she's quarantined um, her quarantined herself yeah yeah very good uh, citizen very prudent flu, yeah nasty flu bug going around our house is now a tb sanitarium so <laughs> well i hope it's not uh, but, it's, it's, yeah. it's a little my, my mom has gone from self-diagnosing herself to the flu to galangela fever to ebola virus so <laughs> that escalated quickly <laughs> Related in the space of about an hour. It was hilarious. <laughs> She's pretty sick, the poor thing. Oh, well, we are looking at today The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, part one, the first book. By which Douglas is just Adams. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes. Um, where do we begin? Well, how about we get from a, Kiara a, a little rap. bit of a plot wrap? Yeah, Kiara, in one minute and 30 seconds. Oh, I can you're you... telling me. Yeah, uh-huh. why not? Let's do this. All right. Okay. Let's let's go. Um, okay. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was published as a book in the mid '80s, but it was first broadcast by the BBC as a radio play by a comedian, Douglas Adams. Um, it is like the quintessential science fiction satire genre. It just invented. It just invented science fiction satire, basically. And the plot goes that a uh, a British man, Arthur Dent, is happily living out his life until someone decides to go and demolish his house to build a highway. And then he gets taken aside by a friend, Ford Prefect, and explained the world's going to be demolished for a hyperspace bypass. And so that starts a grand adventure hitchhiking across the galaxy. And in the, and this, this is a series of six books. So the, in the first book, what happens is that the Ford manages to get them onto a Vogon spaceship, which they then get caught at stowaways and expelled from. They then get picked up by another spaceship known as the Heart of Gold with an infinite improbability drive and is piloted by uh, the president of the galaxy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, and another woman from planet Earth, Trillian. Um... No, no, she's not from planet Earth. Yeah, no, no, she's yeah, she's human. She's humanoid. It ter- Maybe the books are different because in the radio play, she's definitely a human, and in fact, um, Zaphod himself kind of destroyed Arthur's chance of getting with her way back. Yeah. Anyway, there's a funny story about Arthur and Trillian because they'd met before, and he tried to ask her out on a date, and Zaphod like totally blocked him. Okay. In disguise as a man called Phil. By the way, you're ten seconds over time. But that's okay. Keep going. Sorry. So they, they're sorry, told, I, should, I shouldn't have so interrupted. Sorry. They're being chased by the police. They go on this grand adventure to find this uh, this extinct planet called Magrathia, which custom built planets. And the Magrathians had built the planet Earth as an experiment, as a computer program to calculate the question to life, the universe, and everything, because they already had the answer. The answer was forty two, and they and then of course the ex- whole experiment was destroyed. Five minutes before it was due to give the an- the question to like the universe and everything, so the police then catch up with them and they get blasted into through the time and space to the restaurant at the end of the universe and then the next book starts. 
think okay. that's it. That was that was very good. You did that well. That was two and a half minutes, but that was very good. You summed There's that a up lot that goes on very well. in this little book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm impressed. Hmm. So on to the book itself. Um, what do we want to talk about first? I guess something that's the most obvious thing about it, I think, is the comedy, obviously, because it is a comedy. And for me, what I found quite interesting, uh, if I'm going to sort of step into Victoria's shoes as the, the literary person, is... Ooh. Interestingly about how British humour tends to work, like I found the, you know, picked up on a number of themes here, which I, for some reason, despite having seen a lot of Monty Python in my teenage years, never quite picked up on, I guess, until I read things. But it's very British to um, the way that they kind of structure their sentences is that there's something rather normal or banal or just plain at the start of the sentence, which by the end of the sentence becomes ridiculous and that's very much the humour that's in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm just trying to think of um, an example. Victoria, can you just um, throw on, the book over here? Oh, here. Or, 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 I don't know. Hang yeah. on, have a look at <laughs> Chucking we books at each before? other. Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. I've got, I've got a hilarious little moment. Go for, go for it, it. Go for yeah. it. Um, uh, so they're talking to Marvin, the paranoid android, who's one of my favourite characters <laughs> in this whole series, by the way. Um, it's another cultural reference to yeah. Luke's yes. child, well, not childhood, but young adulthood. Yes. Radiohead. But anyway, yes. But how are you feeling, Metal Man, said Ford. Very depressed. What's up? I don't know, said Marvin. I've never been there. Why, said Ford, squatting down beside him and shivering. Are you lying face down in the dust? It's a very effective way of being wretched, said Marvin. Don't pretend you want to talk to me. I know you hate me. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Everyone does. It's part of the shape of the universe. I only have to talk to somebody and they begin to hate me. Even robots hate me. If you just ignore me, I expect I shall probably go away. Like, just that kind of... Yeah, it's it takes something from being, like, at the start there, which is rather plain and normal and then like it's just builds ridiculousness like the shape of the universe it just decays into just nonsense i've got another one here uh this is describing the vogon ships the great ships hung motionless in the sky over every nation on earth motionless they hung huge heavy steady in the sky a blasphemy against nature many people went straight into shock as their minds tried to encompass what they were looking at the ships hung in the sky in much the same way that bricks don't like Done. Yeah, yeah. So what that reminded me of was um, in uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Um, I like how I try to pronounce that with a fancy accent, but it's German. So, like, it's not French. Or, so why try to do that? Franz like? Kafka. Yeah, exactly. I've got, to, I've got to make it really, like, you know. <laughs> angry. Not angry. I've got German heritage, Victoria. <laughs> we are not angry people. <laughs> Where was I? Yes. So in the in the in the Metamorphosis, um, I mean, despite shamefully never having actually read that, because I guess I never went to a university or did, did a degree that required it. Um, I've had friends who have read it and being intrigued with it myself. An interesting thing about that book is that its translation into English doesn't quite capture the original German. And see, in the German. Um, the subordinate clauses in a sentence go at the end of the sentence. And so he uses this to great effect to try and at the start of a sentence, it would be rather plain. And by the end of the sentence, it would get really ridiculous. And 
So an example of this is in the very first sentence of the book, The Metamorphosis. In English, it's, As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a giant insect-like creature. That's the first sentence in English. Now, that's ridiculous because the first half of the sentence is normal. He woke up and the second half of the sentence is he's he's a bug. Um, But in the German, the way that it's structured is that, from what I can gather, because I don't actually read German, so I've got to try and do this piece by piece, the... The way that it's structured is the first half of the sentence is the same, that Gregor Samsar wakes up from uneasy dreams. But the second half of the sentence is more like he found a giant insect-like creature. He was transformed into it. So, it leaves the, sh- it leaves the punchline right until the end of the sentence, right at the end, which is that he is the buck. And you don't get that in the English. But I think that what Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy does is that it does a similar thing where it leaves these ridiculous punchlines, this surrealism, it leaves it to the end of the sentence. You have a perfectly normal sentence and it becomes surreal in the last couple of words, which is fantastic because it's very good, very humorous effect. Yes. And a classic example of this is when they describe the description of the pangalactic gargle blaster. Now, I've actually pulled up the original radio <laughs> A radio script because it is quite succinct. By drink, Ford Prefect meant alcohol. The Encyclopedia Galactica defines alcohol as a colourless, volatile liquid formed by the fermentation of sugars and also notes its intoxicating effect on certain carbon-based life forms. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy also mentions alcohol. It says that the best drink in existence is the pan-galactic gargle blaster, the effect of which is like having your brain smashed out with a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. The guide also tells you on which planets the best pan-galactic gargle blasters are to be mixed, how much you can expect to pay for one, and what voluntary organisations exist to help you rehabilitate. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a fantastic example <laughs> right there, because, like, the first part of that sentence is fairly normal. You know, how they're mixed, how much you can expect to pay for one, and what voluntary organisations exist to help you rehabilitate afterwards. Like, that's ridiculous and hilarious, <laughs> but it says it deadpan. <laughs> Which I imagine would be fantastic in the radio version. It is, it is. And Douglas Adam narrates the whole thing. So it's, he's just, he's got this very, very iconic, quintessential sort of matter of fact, you know, slightly cheerful, but very matter of fact way of going about things. Mm. Like, Mm. kind of like a complaint, uh, you know, a customer service person who, when you ring up customer service, they try to be very matter of fact, but also quite upbeat about the whole situation, even though you're a raging spitball of anger about some you know thing that's broken or not working properly it could be a little bit like i'm thinking in my head i've got, i'll listen to it straight away when i get home uh john cleese in and now for something completely different like he's just mm. completely unfazed by everything mm. as everything is normal yeah but uh, it's quite obviously insane yes that's that's ridiculous. basically this entire book it's uh it, it the, this and the entire radio play it's um it, and it's very very and it's but it also makes some very clever observations of the world at the time too um i was trying to think of it I, it's i accidentally overread and started going into the second book and there are some really hilarious stuff about middle management and how they never get and um, management consultants which made me myself laughing because my dad's a management consultant <laughs> and how they're basically incompetent at getting anything done well i mean there is a little bit of an allusion to that in terms of its um it's 
sort of swipes of bureaucracy and the comparison between, you know, Arthur losing his house and being told, well, you know, we had the plans available at the local council, which as it turns out by the plans available at the local council. Oh, wait, no, I've got to find this. Hang on. Please read it because it's very funny. This is just (laughs) going to be Catholics just quote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I was reading this and I just, (laughs) it got to a point where I wanted to laugh so hard that I, I almost died from keeping it in. Yeah, in I, I've kind of been doing that all week as I'm reading along. I'm sitting there trying not to giggle out loud at, to myself. Okay. <clears throat> but, Mr Dent, the plans have been available in the local planning office for the last nine months. Oh, yes? Well, as soon as I heard, I went straight round to see them yesterday afternoon. You hadn't exactly gone out of your way to call attention to them, had you? I mean, like actually telling anyone or anybody. But the plans were on display. On display, I eventually had to go down to the cellar to find them. That's the display department. With a torch. Ah, well, the lights had probably gone out. So are the stairs. <laughs> but look, you found the notice, didn't you? Yes, said Arthur. Yes, I did. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet stuck in a disused lavatory. <laughs> with a sign on the door saying, beware of the leopard. <laughs> like, you just get to the end and it's just ridiculous. But the way that that's juxtaposed with then later when the Earth is about to be destroyed is the... um... Sorry, I've gone too far. Here we go. Oh, sorry. I just have to laugh at this because this is so quintessentially British insult. Um, Arthur's right. Arthur realizes they're about to um, about to demolish his house, so he runs back out of the pub, oh, out to them, going, "Stop, you vandals! You homewreckers! You half crazed Visigoths! Stop, won't you?" It's just like, <laughs> and then he says, "says he'll um, hang, draw, and quarter them," which I find hilarious. Yeah. And there's of course the whole reference to the fact that the um, that the council representative. Is a long distant descendant of Genghis Khan, which keeps coming back. Like this, just... this this character, he's like this normal, like average bloke, but he has these weird, like flashback slash mental takeovers where men in horses in on Mongol armor are army. laughing at him, <laughs> and anyway. he can't get out of his head. Anyway, so the juxtaposition between what I was referring to before, which was the <laughs> the Earth style bureaucracy, where things just are impossible to get done. Um, and then you have when the earth is being destroyed, uh, the I was going to call them the Visigoths, <laughs> Vogons. <laughs> the Vogons have announced to the people of Earth that their planet is about to be destroyed to make way for a hyperspace highway thing, um, in very much the same way that Arthur's house was going to be destroyed to make a highway bypass. And somebody somehow manages to get in contact with them uh, through. In between the first very brief broadcast of uh, your planets being destroyed, destroyed. for and the actual uh, destruction, you know, bypass basically. Mm. And so they say that you know you would have already known about this because the plans would have been on display. <laughs> now the book then says, by the time somebody somewhere must have manned a radio transmitter, located the wavelength and broadcast a message back to the Vogon ships to plead on behalf of the planet. Nobody ever heard what they said; they only heard the reply. The PA slammed back into life again. The voice was annoyed. It said, What do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri? It's only four light years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to make an interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. Energize the demolition beams. And so it's a very similar kind of thing of being like, the plans were quite obviously on display four light years away. You know, you could have just (laughs) got up and gone over there. 
And so it's that that juxtaposition between the two. It's taking, you know, a kind of slightly exaggerated version of the frustrations that humans go through when dealing with um, governments and then expanding them to the ridiculous on a space level um, for very comedic effect. And don't, and let's remember, this is the 70s, right? Like, digital watches are a new thing in the 70s, like, let alone that kind of sort of space travel. And so mm, mm. this really is truly ridiculous. Like, this is the most ridiculous thing people would have been listening to slash reading at the time. Yeah, yeah. So it takes it, it takes it even further. It does it to very good effect. Um so we've spent half the episode talking about the comedy, which makes sense because it was the thing that stuck it's out. It's a very funny book. Yes. Um Victoria, Chiara, did you have anything to say about any other elements of the book? Victoria, you said you had an interesting theological connection. Go ahead. Well, well this is just this is the point where, you know, this is Catholics read and um I suppose the three of us sometimes might l- make little mental jumps between things that we see in books and, you know, Catholic things, but doesn't mean that the author necessarily had these in mind. In fact, the more I know about Douglas Adams, the more this is, I know this is just a stupid coincidence. Like um, the coincidences that come up when um, people work too close to the heart of gold, like um, that plant, no, that island being called France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You'd know what I mean when you read when you read the books. Anyway, but one of the coincidences, and we were kind of talking about it before, was in terms of um, something on Earth, something happening on Earth uh, that is quite uh, run of the mill or average, um, being transposed, amplified, uh, corresponding to something larger and exterior to ourselves. So you've got uh, the the bureaucratic mess that is Arthur's um, house being. Uh, demolished and the the plans being <laughs> shown in the the lavatory guarded by the leopard or whatever. Well, there's a sign that says there's a leopard. <laughs> let's not let's not even try and make sense of this. <laughs> and then there's um the same thing happening with uh the council in uh what was it Alpha Centauri whatever. Yeah. Okay, and so all I could think of at that point was like, oh my goodness, this is like what happens, you know, in our lives on a theological basis. So basically, I was. I was thinking of similar sort of parallels. So I was thinking about how uh, on earth people get married and there's the bride and groom. And then that's only just a, like a slight shadow of, of the reality to which it points towards. So that being the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the bridegroom that's gone away to make a place for us. And the other one I thought of was basically, you know, people lay down their lives for each other every single day in, in war, in um, just maybe not lives but you know their time or something like that by doing favors or whatever and that's only a vague shadow or um what's the word i want i don't want to use shadow because that doesn't seem right it sounds very platonic if you say yeah i know i should say i should say that the fulfillment of that action um is found in the archetype Mm. sacrifice that is christ's sacrifice on the cross Mm mm-hmm so I don't know what you guys thought about that, but that's all I could think about. And um, I was pretty upset to find out that this wasn't a recurring theme in the book and that it just happened once. But uh, that's, what, that's you know, where I was going in terms of and weird things I picked yeah. up on. Yeah, and that's the thing with Hitchhikers. With Hitchhikers, it's a weird book. There is ne- <laughs> you never see the same thing twice. And it's 
um, you know, so you what you you know, just when you think you've you know started discerning a pattern or trying to make sense of the book, it suddenly hits you sideways in the head with this <laughs> complete random nonsense, and you're like, never mind then. Luke and I were wondering whether this guy had, or you know, maybe him and his friends had dabbled in philosophy or something. But really, I'm, I'm wondering whether they just dabbled in like everything. Just yeah, like I at mean, uni, decided to sit in on a few theology lectures. Maybe, maybe bit, it was just that like, British education was a lot better back. I don't know. Not, not, they they just seem to have a broad hold now, on but... everything. I don't know. Yeah. I'm- I mean, look, Douglas Adams is a very, very clever man, um, very, you know, well-educated, and but just had this incredible imagination. And that, you know, I mean, this, you know, the whole universe is a product of that, you know, is a product of his imagination, basically. Like he's, but he doesn't, he kind of uses it in a way that says more about us as a society now than it does about science fiction, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, because mm. you know how a lot of science fiction is all like, you know, well, if we can imagine it, we will one day build it. No, 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 that's not what Douglas Adams is all about. He's like going, well, I'm going to imagine this thing, but look, oh, look, it's exactly like what we have right yeah. now. <laughs> that's what, and it's what makes it, it's what makes it funny. Like it's, it's so a ridiculous reflection that we can see our own struggles or our own frustrations in that, and it's just put onto a ridiculous level. Um, one of the things, Kiara, I think you would probably know the answer to this is just concerning one of the things that keeps coming up again and again, I found, is um, this reference to kind of, on, a, on an alien level, these kind of pop atheism uh, books, which I find intriguing because it was kind of before pop atheism was a thing uh, in the Western world. I just... Found that interesting. I don't know if you had anything to comment about that. It came up about once or twice, and it was talking about. Um, I'm just trying to think of an example. So, like, you know, books that are more popular than some of these ridiculous, ridiculously named books that seem to be like atheism books, but are quite obviously. Oh, hang on! I know exactly what you're talking about. I can go get that. Anyway, um, Kiara, what were you? Um, um. Well, look, Adams was an atheist himself. Mm. So, and, and he was also quite well, you know, in the artistic intellectual class of Britain at the time. So he would have known kind of some of the, um, the, you know, it's quite, you know, and, at, you know, in academia, there is a lot, there is a high proportion of atheists and agnostics in academia than there are in almost every other profession. Um, and so he would have been, you know, he would have been well kind of versed in that kind of thing. And if anything, like, I just find it hilarious. He wrote this book back in, like, he wrote these, you know, he first published it in 1979, mm. um, you know, which is when the radio the radio plays were kind of put down on tape and published. Um, and he kind of basically predicted Richard Dawkins in, well, in his entirety, yeah, which is that's hilarious. That's interesting thing because, I mean, it, it makes references to, like, there's at one point it talks about this kind of, philosophical argument against the existence of God, which is complete claptrap. Um, and it's quite interesting because it's very much that sort of sappy pop uh, atheism that you see from uh, Richard Dawkins et al. Um, yeah, I, it's just if this book was written today, I would have assumed that it was a shot against that. But, I mean, it wasn't. And so it's it kinda, interestingly it predicting pre- it. Yeah, it was a preemptive strike, if you will, against the absurdity of some of it. And I mean, and I mean, you know, Adams himself might have been an atheist, but he does have an incredible reverence for the mystery and idiosyncr- idiosyncrasies of 
you know, life and existence, you know, and finite existence, if you will. So, you know, I mean, Christians have a, you know, a hope for the eternal, but Douglas Adams is very much, you know, is very much a man of this world and really delights in all the ridiculousness of life that at life as it happens on earth, especially when we don't understand it. Mm. And he kind of goes, that's okay. Let's enjoy it. And I think a lot of people need a dose of that every so often. You know, it doesn't all have to make sense right now. Like we can get so hung up on, you know, our whole life, you know, our nice little life plan and it all makes sense in our little worldview. And he's like, going, no, 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 no. It's much bigger than that. So much bigger than that. In fact, infinitely bigger than that. And he's a funny way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I mean, this book, like this, these radio play, these books are in popular culture today. Like, have you ever had someone say to you, don't panic? Um, that comes from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which has large, friendly letters inscribed with don't panic on the front of this book. Uh, That's one of the great things I've found about this book is, um, I don't know if we were, were we recording when we mentioned this before, the thing about Babblefish? No, we weren't. Um, that just, things just keep on coming up again and again, like the, you know, I, growing up, I didn't even notice was a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But, I mean, there's so many different things. Like, I was mentioning, you know, the, the name. Uh, what was it again? It was ridiculous. Ridiculous is definitely the word of this episode. Where are you, Mr. Slarty Bartfast? <laughs> Which sounds so rude, but it's not. Um, that name. Uh, the term babblefish. I mean, in my early teenage years when computers and internet was like an early thing at my high school, you know, people would use babblefish to look up things in different languages that we'd never understand anyway. Um, but just, I mean, that's just two things. I mean, there's many, many other sort of references uh, that the culture has picked up on. And it really has become, even if we don't realise it, part of the culture around us, which I think is a bit of a testament to the staying power of something um, like this, which you wouldn't expect from, I mean, science fiction, you would assume, uh, would either A, um, be very niche, or B, not have a lot of staying power because life changes. Um, Unfortunately, science fiction will sometimes become dated very quickly because the way that it thinks that technology is going to go... Well, it either becomes science fact or there's a completely different reality. It goes in a completely different direction. So, an example of that would be um, Back to the Future Part 2's, um, <laughs> you know, it's got, it's got floating skateboards, it's got tie up, tie, self-tying shoes, it's got pizzas that kind of warp to you, and yet they still have dot matrix printers and facts. Yeah. Like, things <laughs> like that. I or mean, a Blade Runner. Hey, 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 Harvey is- Norman still has dot matrix printers, okay? That's, you know... They're good, those things. Don't knock. Well, I, I, did, <laughs> I did see a dot matrix printer at a bank the other day. I mean, I guess for certain things, maybe dot matrix is still the way, they but maybe like- not for sending your fired um, <laughs> notices to people as in Back to the I Future. Um- <laughs> Again, they're my childhood. So, you know, just like this, just like these, you know, this series is. Mm-hmm. All right. So, I guess, I mean, there's more we could probably talk about, but we're running close to the half an hour mark and I don't want to go over too much um, because I keep doing that every week. <laughs> it just keeps getting sort of hanging around the 35-minute th- mark and stuff. So, um, we'll probably finish up there then. Yeah. 
so yes, if you um, if you want to know more and more about the the culture that we're in, if you've ever wondered where a reference comes from and you have no idea what it's on about, um, then it probably comes from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> I've established. I, I, honestly, you should read it anyway because it's a seriously good laugh. It's it a is. funny book. Yes, it's a funny. It's a funny book. Um, aside from the potential uh, sacrilegious. Terms. Oh yeah, but. I mean, there's there's that, but then again, I mean, that's kind of comes with the territory of British humour in the 1970s. Um, so consider that a warning. But I mean, it's not like. But anyway. No, and you know, and he's and I mean, look, Douglas Adams, if anything, is irreverent, and nothing is um, nothing is too sacred for him to you know maybe not poke too hard, but at least gently prod something that would be that some people might find a little bit offensive. But all in all, like it's. It really, really is very, very clever and very funny. And it's not time- crass, I guess. Uh, that's sort of put it like it's not. Um, no, yeah. it's never crass. It's clever. It's witty, and every time you read it, you find a new layer of kind of you know a, a new layer of mm, cleverness mm. to it. If that makes sense, and it's very dry and sarcastic, and yeah, I love it. It's one of my favourite. You know, it was my first introduction to British comedy, and I haven't looked back since. It's so British. All right, so uh, we will wrap up there. What should we? What should we read next week? We're Great reading Gatsby. the Great Gatsby next week. It's um, happening. We've made that decision in that two one and a half second gap that you saw there, uh, that you experienced on the other side, which we removed because not because of any space-time continuum it was just, it was destruction just but but just because we stopped the recording so next week the great gatsby is happening that's what we're doing we're going to get some leonardo dicaprio or robert redford robert redford depending but- on who you like better i don't know um anyway so next week we will be no, next fortnight. We do this every two weeks, right? Next fortnight, we will be reading The Great Gatsby by... By F. Scott Fitzgerald. What a great name. I, should I think be, it was... I should change my name to, like, a, a letter, a word, and another word. That would be great. Anyway. L something. People on the other side of the <laughs> internet don't know my surname. <laughs> I'm going to have to beep that out. It wouldn't Mystery take them very name. long to. <laughs> it wouldn't take them long to figure it out, though. But anyway, no, wouldn't. Oh, now we have to figure out a, a sensor noise. But anyway, that's all stuff that we can talk about after the recording instead of boring our listeners here. So, thank you very much for joining us. Next time, we'll be reviewing, talking about, commentating on the Great Gatsby. So, goodbye. Bye. Bye. That was an episode of Catholics Read from Cradio.org.au. 